0: Welcome to the Design Exec Club podcast, featuring global design executives discussing how to solve and accelerate to a better future with the design lens. I'm Mark Bergen, the founder and chair of the Driven by Design Awards. Over the last 18 months, I've had the privilege to interview a wide range of design leaders, We've re edited and tweaked the audio and republished these for you to learn, be inspired, and understand how others are getting to the future faster and working to create a better future. Here we are at Vivid Ideas with Harriet Wakelam. Hello, Harriet. Hi. Oh, gee, come on, let's give Harriet a big round of applause. Now, Harriet, that's probably the coyest hi I've ever heard from you. You're a big voice when, you, when it comes to talking to design, and you're actually being very humble here. What's up? I'm always humble. I just get grumpy when people say like...
1: I, I'm a grumpy human as well as, a, uh, as, as, as well as I'm quite a humble person. I, I think my interest is, is more in about how we can create space for my craft. And that doesn't mean I have to be a big voice unless I think there's something worth fighting for.
0: I've got a feeling today's podcast is going to take us through a walk in the design practice that, uh, that Harriet's been involved with in a very deep and interesting way. What is interesting is over the last six weeks, I've had over 40 interviews that I've done in Hong Kong, New York, London, Berlin, Paris. I almost forgot Paris there. How do you forget Paris? But um, so I've had a lot of conversations. And what's been very interesting through the diversity of those conversations is that there's no real pattern that comes to how design is managed in the boardroom. There's no real pattern of how it's managed in middle management or even down in design operations. And what's been interesting is that the trend has been that we've been trying to manage design in a similar way to how you would manage accountancy, the accountancy practice, finances or engineering. And I've got a feeling it's turned out to be that it's more like how you would manage the legal side of a business, which is contextual rather than parametrically driven. as you're running the, the, the design area in, in IAG, are you trying to come up with a standard set of numbers or are you telling stories or is it a blend of mix? Tell us a bit about how you go and actually create evidence that what you're doing is actually having an impact on the organisation.
1: I'd say it's, it's a mixture of both. It, it's, if you, can't, if, if you can't show the value and the outcomes of the work that you do, than you expect and probably deserve to be cut. So there is a need for you to build a clear hypothesis of value, but that value can be traditional metrics. So so absolutely, I would quantify traditionally things like acquisition, retention, um, pain point removal. um, And I think they're probably far better things to measure than delight. I think the other is to talk about value in emerging Spaces. So we are concerned about trust. These are some things that we think will have an impact on trust. These are our hypotheses. But again, it comes back to evidence-based practice. So we always ask our stakeholders, is that an opinion? Is it subjective? Do you have any evidence for that opinion? And what is the value you're trying to deliver? And, and by looking at those three things, it becomes very clear about where you would want to have a... where, where, you, would, where you would be able to have a conversation. So So often what we find is people end up in the opinion box, and that's fine. But if people are coming to you with opinions, it's you can then take them on a conversation about evidence and about
0: value. So evidence-based design would be that you've actually gone out and inquired, you've done mm-hmm. research, you've um, had some hypotheses that you've tested, you've come up with outcomes from that, and then you've come to a conclusion that out of all of the scenarios that you'd built, that there was a set of them that was more likely to be successful and Mm -hmm. then you'd advance them.
1: Which is, I mean, it's effectively part of the, the tradition of a learning organization. So in that sense, putting design firmly in the context of a learning organization, people and culture teams understand learning organizations, HR departments understand learning organizations. So talking about consistent learning and experimentation as the way in which we deliver evidence-based design is a lot more familiar and a lot more likely to get budget or to get support than saying, oh, you should definitely have lots of designers working on that because designers are special.
0: I suppose it's one of the things that we've seen change around the culture of design is that it... It used to be that design was offered up as, we've done everything, you should accept this, and you may have two options, or you may have one option. But that seems to have changed, where the design now is actually saying, give us the challenge, and we'll go out and we'll actually investigate it, we'll come up with evidence-based results, and then we'll go implement it. But the idea of doing silver bullets isn't so much the way to do it, isn't it? It's actually smaller initiatives that are trying to go and progress.
1: We have um, a way of thinking about it in terms of and, and I, I talked earlier about things that are ambiguous or naive or emerging versus things which are beginning to be describable versus things that are stable. And I think it's David Snowden who, who talks about some of these. But design is simply the same. That we, They came to us last year and said we have a delivery problem. It turned out we didn't have a delivery problem. What we had was a way of teaching treating all ideas as if they were the same. And some ideas are like giant big jellyfish. They, they are nowhere near. They have 70 or 80 hypotheses inside them. They are what we call learning options, and those learning options are areas of which we want to explore or we want to know more. Each one of those hypotheses in there, we can we can move fast in those early learning options. We want to test rapidly, and the data space is changing. So where you used to have to go out and do customer testing with stuff, some days you don't need to anymore because the data tells you that there is something clearly going wrong here. If, those, if we hold those things long enough, they start to shape, and they shape into hypotheses that are more stable, and that's when we can move them into that Agile space where you could run set sprints and set runs of experimentation to move you faster towards something that's stable. Okay. Where it often goes wrong is that we're so busy trying to deliver that we put one of the big, large, amorphous jellyfish learning options and we try to apply Agile to it and do it in a four-week sprint. So it's the discipline of experimentation that helps us learn new ideas. So in the same space like with motor and with the future of, of our homes, there's so much that we could do there that what are the areas we want to focus on and where would we put our, our information? We would work with data scientists. So I think one of the most interesting things now is how data and design are starting to work together. And I was working last week with this incredibly smart human who um, blows my brain, but, but she said to me, oh, we actually do the same thing. It's just you do it with different tools to me. And I think we're starting to see that in organisations. What we're starting to see is less of the sort of deification of design and more of an acceptance that we use principles and practices and we apply them in ways that move us forward. As a design, someone else's maybe data, but they're effectively experimentation. Then our organisations become better at experimenting.
0: So last week, I had the opportunity to go speak to the managing director of Tashin, who do all of those beautiful, you know, art and uh, design books. And we were talking about the, the way the business model at Tashin works is that it's very much, it's a circus, and they've got a ringleader... And the ringleader gets all of the other circus actors to do something, and the performance is great. And that's what a Tashin book is. It's come out from one ringleader. And there's a few other organisations that have a, a circus ringleader. So. They're Pixar. Pixar, uh, Jobs was uh, there, Jobs was at Apple. We, I think we know when we've got a ringleader uh, or ringmaster in there uh, running a circus. But most enterprises aren't circuses. They're probably more like an orchestra And then they have these innovation teams which are a little bit more like an ensemble. How do you go from that ensemble where you're feeling each other into managing it at an orchestration side across the whole enterprise? Is is that something that you think you've got down pat or do you think it's something that is still evolving, that transition from a nice jazz ensemble into orchestration?
1: Oh, no, we haven't. I mean, we we are a design team of 38, so we definitely, I haven't got there yet fully. Um, I also think that there's good leadership, and good leadership, whether it's good design leadership or good anything leadership, I- is a skill that's needed to be had. And, and I think design hasn't necessarily done itself any favors by making itself special sometimes. There are things that are special about leading design, and there are things that are special about managing design. But there are things that are special about managing finance, and there are things that are special about managing innovation. One of the things I think Design maybe hasn't been good at in the past is being decisive. And, and we have to work in ambiguity and probably more ambiguity than the finance department who have numbers on a spreadsheet. And part of orchestrating design is actually to give confidence and to be able to say, we have this level of ambiguity, but based on the value and based on the evidence I have, I'm going to call it and I'm going this way. And I think that is a skill that will help scale design. And that's something I I notice in some of the best designers I've ever worked with.
0: One of the um, presenters that we had earlier on in the series was talking about an MIT study that found that if there were three board members who were tech savvy, that the organisation would accelerate in their digital transformation. Sorry, that (laughs) word came up. But their digital transformation, their tech enablement. If there were less than three board members who were advocates for digital, it actually slowed down. And I wonder when it comes to design, can we identify who those three people are who are trying to go do something which is human-centered, that's actually making it about the customers? Have we got to that threshold where there's three people on the board who want that to happen?
1: I think we also have to make it tangible for them. I've also been in lots of situations where I've heard people talk about design and it sounds beautiful and fluffy and amazing. and And at the end of it, you'd be like, so what do we do? And I don't know if you ever heard, there's that that Renee Zellweger, I think it is, she does a little clip and she's talking about, so what do we do now? And I think one of the things about being decisive is being able to say, not these are all the beautiful things that design can do, but this is the recommendation I make, this is the hypothesis I think we should go with, and this is where I think we could go, and this is how we'll know we got there. And that's really key, and we we do know that. You know that bit where you've ruthlessly edited a design to the point where you are pretty sure that it's going to have the effect. And you know, you know that. And being able to talk about that in a a way that is persuasive and articulate and back yourself. And I think it's those three people. I think if you can talk like that, I think you very rarely get pushback. And so I think maybe it's as much about helping our design teams to be able to speak with that confidence, to talk about the ambiguity, to talk about the decisiveness, but back themselves is also
0: really key. Earlier this year, we did a, um, a live podcast recording at uh, the Paws Fest in Melbourne. And uh, one of the presenters that was on the stage was Andy Hoyne who, um, uh, from Hoyne Design. And we were talking about how does Andy go sell design into into boards? And what was interesting was his first comment was he said, I never speak about design. And we we're saying, what do you mean? He said, well, I'll talk about what what increased lift people want to go get out of a property development, what sort of amenity do they want, what sort of experience do they want to have for the people who are going to move in or for the investors who have people who are renting from them, what type of experience do they want in in this?
1: If you ask somebody, do you want 200,000 more customers within a six-month time frame, then my recommendation is that we change this bit of the website because this is the place where you're losing your 200,000. It's very unlikely someone's going to say no thanks. If you say... Oh, I think we've got this great idea. We could totally change the flows of the website so that people have a really engaging experience. How about that?
0: And a bit of delight. You <laughs> yeah, know, a bit we of could delight. double the amount of delight that they're having. So, so I think one of those key things there is that we're actually finding out that the way the design's working in the boardroom is it's probably not spoken about. It's going to be disguised in some other manner.
1: I don't know. We should disguise it.
0: Ah, so so th- <laughs> this is interesting. So. So with some of the other presenters that we or well, interviewees that we've had, we've been talking about there's, there's a very well-structured language when it comes to design operations, because that's been going on for, well, Bauhaus is having its 100th year celebration this year. And we know that there's a lot of culture there that's been built up and a lot of language, terminology, methodology. When we come into the management layer, it's still very early days and not well-defined. And when we go higher up into strategy and into governance, that we find that there's almost no language there. And and so as part of a way to go address that, we were talking about a periodic table. Now, I'm not a chemist, but I know that there's 115 plus elements in the periodic table, but there used to be 20. When periodic table started, there were 20, which was really bad news when we came up to atomic weapons, because if we didn't know about iodine, which is about number 52 or 53, most of us would have died if we had been exposed to radiation because iodine's the little magic secret there. So if you turn around and say, well, there was an expansion of the periodic table down into 50 elements, luckily it went to 80 and down to 100. But if we didn't know about iodine and we didn't understand what that did, it meant that we couldn't then go get the atomic weapons phase, we couldn't get the atomic energy phase because we had a missing element to actually make that solution come around. And what we've seen with design is that just about every design conference, every design festival always goes back to four or five fundamental elements of design, being architecture, uh, graphic design, industrial design. It uh, it falls back into these uh, elements which aren't really that expanded. But we all know that it's likely to be the system design or it's going to be the sound design or it's going to be the experience design, the customer experience design. There's all of these sub-elements that are there. So in September, we're going to actually be doing a project in New York where we start to go map out what are those elements of design. We started doing a rough list, and uh, before we knew it, we were already over 50. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to invite in lots of design experts who are in New York, and then I'll go to London and Paris and Berlin and here to Sydney and Melbourne, and, and we'll see who actually can turn around and help us to define what is a bigger conversation around design. Because if we can't go give that confidence to, the, to, the, to a board and to management that there's a more structured language than people who just say, yeah, I know what you mean by design. We're going to choke the opportunity there.
1: Do you think we need it, though? Do you think I, I can do... I, I, I have to do budgets and I have to do profit and loss statements and I know the basic subset of information. I, I think if we talk about outcomes and outputs, does it matter that people can't talk about
0: design? Generally, people who know their way and can self-navigate don't need a map. So, so I'd say that there's a whole bunch of people who don't understand how all of that taxonomy fits together and how that they're independent but also codependent in a a project. So by turning around and saying, well, for this project, we're going to use an expert who's an external expert in this type of design, but we'll use our internal people, and and this is the team that we're making up, helps to go give a structure for people who may not be able to put that map together. So I think it's necessary to go and actually give guidance to people who may not feel fully orientated. And it's an important thing about bringing people along, not trying to break through. We remember we're trying to include people in the tent, get them all to understand how this operates. So I think having tools like that are gonna be of some assistance. But I wanna go a little bit further into because not only have you got this experience that you've had with, uh, you've currently got at IAG, but you're also at uh, one of our medical insurance companies here in Australia, Medibank Private. And they were trying to go through and take some quite legacy systems. And uh, I must do some uh, full declaration here. I'm a customer of Medibank Private. And I haven't changed the insurance plan that I've been on for more than 20 years. And uh, I probably should have changed it. But I, I don't know how to understand the new plans and new covers that are available. And I'm just convinced I'm going to lose. And I know Harriet was trying to work out how to get me to be one of those customers who would actually change my plan because I think I'm on an old technology system that makes this product work. And there's there's some of those problems that exist in organisations. So when you you were with the medical insurer, how different was that in dealing with customers who were reticent to change in a highly regulated area and trying to evolve product that would work there? Because there's all sorts of imperatives to do that.
1: I I don't think it's any different from working in any industry. There are constraints you have to work within, and those are regulatory. um, And and you can't break those. And then there are the constraints of the organisation and the materials of which an organisation is made, and you have to work with those. And there are pieces of that that you can bend and you can shape and you can build. But effectively, humans are humans. And one of our biggest challenges, and it's, it's everywhere in the press at the moment, is around transparency. And one of the opportunities of the data-driven environment is that we are having to bring new products and services into life in an environment where things are more uncertain and where data and where risk is, is more uncertain than it ever was. And, and I don't think there is anything different. I think if you design, you design a thing within a context. A context w- within a world. And, and I, does, I think so long as you're paying attention to this, it doesn't matter if you're designing health insurance or car insurance, one of the interesting things is, that is changing is the role of the organization. And we have probably an opportunity right now for large organizations to take on a fundamentally different role in a context. And that feels to me really deeply exciting because if... Data is no longer secret, and even information is no longer the thing that makes you competitive because data is everywhere and transparency is required. And we've seen in GDPR that that's changed in Europe the way that people are collecting data. They're no longer collecting everything, they're collecting only the things that you have to have. Then there is a huge role to design and shape the new roles of organizations in transparency. And for designers working in products and services in an emerging context like that, we have a massive role to help our organizations experiment in that space. And I think that's interesting. So I, I, I think that the, we, we've applied design at the product and service level. I think that has been reasonably successful. But now it's time to look a layer out and start to be more cognizant of the organizational layer. Not saying that w- designers should be the people who decide on the organizational shape of the, of the of the business, rather that we need to have better understanding of organizations in order to design things that are better able to meet the needs of our customers. And that's probably an ask on designers as much as it is an ask on organizations.
0: I was fortunate enough to go and speak to the uh, design team involved with uh, Nike and also with New Balance on this tour. And uh, what was interesting there was they were telling stories which were, and for the audience here, you, you all can't get jobs there, okay? But they were organizations where the board was demanding of the business to design customer excellence, to design customer experiences, which were going to be delightful, that were going to be high performance. The board. It wasn't that the design team had to convince the board because that was inefficient. It was the board actually wanted the design team to actually do more. And it was really interesting in the conversations of the difference of people who were were having a relatively inefficient time by always having to go and propose and explain rather than having board members that were also savvy on the topic who were actually demanding of the business unit to perform. And it it was night and day. And And when I stood back and I thought about it, I went, Nike's all about performance. And they were then having a board that was managing from a performance perspective. Their DNA is about performance It's about doing things and that's how they were actually acting in the way that they were making their advertising campaigns, the way that they were actually designing new products. All of their customer touch points were, are we giving our customers performance here? But performance didn't mean winning, it just meant that you were getting to attain the satisfaction and the the goals that you had. And it was really interesting to see how that culture was so different than people who you saw like, yeah, we're doing some great design work and, and sometimes we get it supported by the board and sometimes we don't. And so there was this whole band of mediocre performance, still brilliant design, but mediocre. And then there were these people who had this elite performance and it really came down to the DNA of the board and therefore the culture of the overall organisation. Why did they exist and what were they trying to achieve? And I found that interesting. I think that we've,
1: we've been... Most of our organizations have visions or purpose statements. But it goes back to that describing to make and making to describe. You can have an aspirational purpose statement. Ours is a safer world. And I believe in that. Like I went to work for that company because I believe in a safer world too. The debate comes with how do you create that safer world? And that is, a, is one of the areas where design can be most useful because it breaks down and it frames the challenge, and it might help break it down into bite-sized lumps. And it's, I feel like there's often a gap between, it's not board or the makers, but actually there's a gap of configuration in the middle, and this is where I think we, internal design teams, have a really interesting space to play. Because what does a safer world mean? If you say, guys, go make a safer world, they go, oh, yeah, sure, right, I went, what? Is that what you mean? And the guys at here go, no. No, no, that's not what we mean. Okay, what about that? No. Nope. So there needs to be a space where you come together and you, you trial. And I think prototyping has come to mean wireframes or, or things that happen in an innovation. Like prototyping is about making something tangible enough to make a different kind of decision about the way it's configured. And that is starting to happen. But we're not talking about... If we were talking about, hey, we've got a way to help make that purpose perhaps a little easier to meet for people who make. And part of that problem is because people who make things and people who run boards are often two completely different sets of people. And actually what if boards learnt to make things? And, and one of the things I've been starting to do is go, well, what would it look like with our GLT? Is teach, Get people to stop and make a thing. Because when they go off and tell somebody to make something in three months, do they fully understand the sets of decisions that need to be made to make a thing?
0: I had a, had a beautiful interview with a gentleman who runs the physical site at Hudson Yards in, in New York. And uh, it, was, it was a strange interview because he couldn't actually dis, uh, disclose who he worked for. He used to be in the military and he couldn't really disclose what operations he did in the military, but we, we had to get around this and have a conversation. And what, what we worked out was that he had over 3,000 staff that worked in the, in the precinct that he was managing. And here we are looking out over Circular Quay here in Sydney and the site is bigger than Circular Quay, to just give you a bit of reference. And he's got 3,000 staff. And then when the board says that they want to change something, he's got to remind them that he has to mobilize 3,000 staff every day to either change the way that the rubbish is picked up, what time of day, in what way, 3,000 staff who are involved with the security, you know, are, are there protocols of how things meant to operate, what's allowed to work there and what isn't? He's got 3,000 staff who are helping people at information booths. When you went through it, it like this is a, a major militarisation that you've got of this site. And what we worked out was that there were some times that he might need to actually have almost the green berets come in. And if you could imagine if a dignitary came into a circular key, you don't want to change the whole way that all staff works, but maybe it's just for a short period of time, a specialist thing that needs to be done. And that's probably best where you've got the Green Berets who know how to go in and do that. So you might have an initiative which is around the appointment of a new CEO. It doesn't change the whole company in the immediate time. You've got to work out how to keep everything going. And it was very interesting to realise that the idea of having this homogenous, well-orchestrated entity was a very different thing than having special units to go do special projects. And so I suppose is we're trying to work out, how do you get the make a safer world? Is it safer world or a safer, safer world? Safer world, thank you, I had to get that, right? So how to make a safer world. And then if you've operationalised that, you may still need the ensemble to help out with some special projects. And at a certain point, you stop doing it as an ensemble and you wind up operationalising that when it becomes the norm.
1: I think the operationalis... Op- I can never say this word. Operationalising something is... Con- continually evolving it these days. And, and I think we just went through, and I think it always has been. I think that we just came out of the industrial era where you could productionize things in a way that meant doing it lots of the same way all the time. Actually, now we're in such a turbulent and ambiguous environment that you can't anymore, and that's our new normal. But actually, that, and that goes back to what I was saying at the beginning I, I think that our context has changed, and the context in which we deliver has changed. And what we're now seeing is is step change in the way that we deliver. And I don't have any doubt that design will have a part of that. Will it be as a design team, or will it be a core capability of the organisation with a small group of experts? I don't know yet. I think we have to see.
0: Harriet, I've had an absolute delight time having a one-on-one conversation with you, so thank you very much. Audience, if you can give Harriet a round of applause for us. You've been listening to the Design Executive Club podcast. If you'd like to listen to other episodes, please subscribe to the podcast in your favourite podcast software. Make sure you like us. Make sure you share the news. And uh, by being subscribed, you'll find out when our next episode comes. So thank you for listening, and we look forward to bringing you more episodes very soon.